0: Well, as we continue our study in the book of Leviticus, I invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 18 this morning. You'll find that on page 96 in the Pew Bible in front of you. As we, are, I think, are around week 8 or 9 in our summer series and uh, this wonderful book. And I trust God has a word for us this morning and will help us to see Him and help us to follow Him. While you're finding your way to Leviticus chapter 18... Did want to give you a brief update on our team in Ghana. Um, they, as you know, they were doing a couple of VBSs. The last VBS was down in the Yam Market or the slums, and uh, last uh, day, uh, second and third day, they had over four hundred children um, there, and uh, we praise the Lord for that, um, and uh, praise the Lord that the gospel was shared. One of the wonderful things about the the Yam Market in Accra is that. The, the Muslim families are very pleased to send their children to Christian events. And so we know that the gospel was shared faithfully, and uh, we want to continue to pray for them as they begin to transition and make their way home. But we're thankful for God's work through them. I also want to, if I can, uh, briefly address this morning before we get in our scripture uh, the events that took place just south of us yesterday as our nation is uh, kind of attention is drawn to Charlottesville and the. A tragedy and uh, the terror that is taking place down there. I simply would like uh, to announce to you, I'll confirm in your heart, that racial superiority in any form, in this case, white superiority, is an abominable heresy. And it is contrary to God's good creation. When we rank people based upon color of skin, culture, and language in which they speak, we are defaming the image of God which is endowed in every single person in this world. And everyone receives their value and dignity and worth not based upon where they are from or the language in which they speak, but based upon the God in whose image they have been made. Moreover, we it is not only a heresy against God's good creation, it is a heresy against the gospel. For Jesus Christ has come to die and rose again in order to unite all peoples into one people. Scripture says, For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, and if I may add this morning, there is neither black nor white. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so let us be convinced in God's good Word and His love for all people. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. And now we'd like to direct our attention to our word this morning from Leviticus chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow My rules and keep My statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for Your Word. And we can be convinced this morning that the Scripture in which we consider is the very words of God Himself. And therefore, they are good and profitable for us. Even when they are challenging and so help us to rejoice in them this morning. Help us to learn from them who you are, that we might be more conformed to the image of our Savior. For we pray it in His name. Amen. Last October, prominent evangelical author Jen Hatmaker was asked, Do you support gay marriage? Her answer, I'll quote her, Two adults have the right to choose who they want to love. She continues to affirm that a gay relationship can be God-honoring and a holy way to live. Similarly, uh, one of the best-selling evangelical authors of all time, including the Bible paraphrase, The Message, Eugene Peterson, three weeks ago in an interview was asked if you are pastoring today in a gay couple in your church, asked you to perform their same-sex wedding ceremony, is that something you would do? Peterson answered simply, yes. Probably should not be surprised that Peterson in 2014 explained that his his, his opinions on LGBT issues, he said, quote, I've started to change my mind. We are changing our mind about sex in our culture. We, we in, in fact, not just in regard to homosexuality. Today, I, I think I heard the study maybe a couple months ago, a staggering 40% of babies born in America are born outside of wedlock. That used to be a stigma. It is no longer. Promiscuity is now the norm. Adultery is accepted. Monogamy is endangered. All the while, Christians are either the butt of jokes or the disdain of our culture, causing it to be said, the Victorians pretended sex did not exist. The moderns pretend that nothing else exists. We lived in a sex-obsessed society. It is everywhere. It is a constant theme on television, on the internet, in advertisements. And the Bible, God's Word, has much to say about this. Bible comes and it tells us how God's people are to live. We are found ourselves in the second half of the Book of Leviticus, chapters 17 through chapters 27, are often called the Holiness Code, and we we see from this passage and others that God is holy. God is good and beautiful and perfect and honorable and unique and true. He's holy. That's mentioned 90 times in the book of Leviticus. And the second half of this book comes and answers the question, how can we live for this holy King? Well, we find out we are to live like Him. For instance, look in chapter 19 and verse 2. Hear what the Lord says. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. We're to be like Him. We're to reflect his character. We are, we are to show the world what God is like. And, and God is, through Christ, restoring in us our role as his image-bearers to show his character. And and he does, he helps us by giving us the law. Here in Leviticus and elsewhere. And I want you to understand this morning. Sometimes the law is given a bad rap in Christian circles. Hear me clearly. The law of God is good. His rules are good. Parents, do you have rules in your house? You do, don't you? We have rules in our house. Honor your mother. Ask before you turn on the television. Don't lie. Don't steal. Close the door behind you. Right? I don't know how many times we've had to reinforce that rule this summer. Right? close the door behind now am i trying to restrict their self-expression right right what if they say i don't want to close the door i don't feel like closing the door no what we're trying to do with rules in our house is god is doing in his law he's trying to help us to live in a way that is best for us Our rules in our home are just simply the way that's best for our little community. Best for the carnation to live together as a community. God's law is good. I want you to remember this as we consider it today. Put that in your heart. Let that be the banner that overflies everything that we consider today. That He knows what is best for us in all things. And for today in particular in romantic and sexual relationships. In fact, you read the Bible and you learn that sex is a gift from God given to huma- humans to enjoy. But like most gifts, it can become perverted. We can distort what God wants. Kevin DeYoung, a Christian author, says sex is like a car. Right? Cars are nice. We all like cars. Cars make getting around easier. You can carry things. You can visit people. Some cars are cool. Some cars are fast, right? But cars require rules, right? They require training. You have to be a certain age. You have to pass tests. There are traffic laws. We say, listen, when you drive on the road, you, you drive in your lane. That's a rule. That's, we drive on the right-hand side of the road. That's a rule. The rules are not to keep us from using the car, not to prohibit the use of the car, but to use the car in a way that is safe for us and enjoyable and safe for other people. And when we disregard the rules, what happens? You say, I want to drive on the left-hand side of the road. That's who I kind of just feel like I am. I'm a, I'm a left-hand side-of-the-road driver, right? You're going to hurt yourself and hurt other people. God's rules are not meant to restrict us. They're to show us how to use God's gifts. And sex is a gift from God. You read Song of Solomon's, for instance. Proverbs chapter 5, for instance. Most people will enjoy it, but there are rules, and there, some of them, not all of them, are found in Leviticus chapter 18. Now, the question when we come to passages like this is, Okay, well, how do I know which rules still apply and which rules no longer apply, right? Because remember, we used to be able to drive only 55 miles an hour. Remember those days? And I was in Wyoming just a couple of months ago and I was the speed limit was 80, all right? And so the rules have changed. And this is what happens when we talk about these issues. Our culture comes and confronts us and says, why do you keep some laws and not other laws, right? Why is... Why is um, fornication a sin? Sex outside marriage is sin, but you can have a labradoodle. Or you can wear polyester if you want to. Right? Or you can eat shrimp. What, what, aren't you picking and choosing which laws you want to obey and which laws you don't want to obey? Now, I don't, to me, this is not a difficult issue. I think it's, it's obvious which ones apply and which ones don't. Some laws clearly apply to Israel as a nation. The year of Jubilee, for instance, does not apply to other nations. We'll consider that in the coming weeks. Some laws are cultural. So Israel will be told in Leviticus 19, for instance, not to reap the edges of your field. That's in order to help the poor. Well, the poor no longer live in fields, right? At least in our land. So that's not how we help the poor. But we still sh- the principle is the same. God doesn't change. We still should help the poor and find a culturally understandable way to do that. Some laws distinguished Israel from pagan neighbors. Like... Don't eat camel was one of those rules. Well, that will not distinguish us from anyone. One of the rules we'll find, and I, I think we should bring it back, don't cut your beard, right? Is, is a rule in God's law. I can't wait to preach that passage, right? But why? Well, we cut our beards for some reason. Um, it's a lot easier if you don't, by the way. But anyways, we, we do this because that no longer distinguishes us from, from people. Right? So that it seems to be all. Some laws are clearly repealed in the New Testament. The kosher laws, cast away. It's very clear. Could, we've actually considered that. The priesthood, cast away. Sacrifices have been set aside. But some laws are repeated in the New Testament. Homosexuality, for instance, is prohibited in the New Testament. Fornication, adultery, those are bad. Those are sin. In fact, most laws dealing with moral issues still apply. Prostitution, still a sin. Dishonest business practice, still a sin. So, so eat shrimp. Jesus says it's okay, wear polyester if you want, right? The priesthood is ended. But don't steal, right? Don't, don't curse the deaf or trip the blind, as Leviticus teaches us. One of the things we do find the same is that the New Testament, the sexual ethic in which God gives us in Leviticus, is reaffirmed in the New Testament. But interestingly, the punishments are not. In fact, chapter 20, why don't you turn there for a moment, deals with the punishments on sexual sin. Consider verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be surely put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male, with a woman. Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And, and on and on goes. Now, we can't spend a lot of time in chapter 20. Um, if you have questions, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I actually did a lot of study on this passage. And I'm happy to dialogue with, with you. But what we see in chapter 18 are the prohibitions. God says, my people don't do this, my people don't do this, my people don't do this. We get to chapter 20, it's case law. and it says, if they do this, this is what you do, right? This is the, the penalty. And as you see there, the penalties are severe. It's either execution or being exiled or cut off uh, or to die childless. And you might look at those and say, wow, okay, these seem a little harsh to me. They do to me as well. But if that's what we're thinking, let me give you five, quickly, five principles to help us understand these type of punishments. Number one, please know God punishes sin. We've seen that already in Leviticus. Remember chapter 10? Two priests want to walk into the Holy of Holies. God strikes them dead. There will be one other story in the book of Leviticus down in chapter 24. And once again, it is an execution. God punishes sin. We see that not just in Leviticus. We see that throughout the Bible. Read the book of Genesis. You have a flood. God flooding the world, killing every man, woman, and child upon it, except for those who took refuge within His ark. You read about Sodom. You can read about the wars in the Promised Land. You can read about the exile of God's people. You read the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira struck dead. You can read about Corinth, them uh, abusing and profaning the Lord's Supper and God punishing them. God punishes sin. Number two, hell is worse than any punishment we see here on earth. And whatever punishment you see in the Bible, hell is worse. And so if these seem harsh to you, if you say, okay, wow, this is extreme, then my question is, okay, then what what do you do with hell? Because if this is extreme, hell is going to be worse than this. And so please understand that whatever punishment you find in this earth, God will punish even more severely in the life to come. Number three, God punishes, at least in part, for sake of the mission of his people. Their mission is to show what God was like, to be ambassadors to the world. That God called them, gave them His laws, says live like me in order that, that the saving knowledge of who I am may extend to the nations. But if they are not going to live like God, then the King's saving message will never be heard by the world. The King's character will never be seen. And so I believe God punishes individuals for the sake of the world, for the sake of His mission. Number four, it seems to me that the Bible teaches that the quality of our days are more important than their quantity. We care about quantity. We want to prolong life as, as long as possible. I, I'm with that. I agree. We, we want to push off death. I'm all for that. But capital punishment here shows that God is more interested in the quality of life more than its duration. It's, as someone has said, it's more important to be holy than to be old. We even sometimes sing about this. Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, right? Should I w- leave you? Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. In other words, sim- to simply don't pray for a long life. Pray, God, keep me from sin and give me a life that honors You. Number five, even as Craig prayed for us this morning, I believe it was, sin is worse than you think. And in seeing these punishments, it helps us to understand how serious God takes sin. I think there's a core message to the book of Leviticus that sin is treason against God. It pollutes the world in which He made. It is a rejection of His love. Because listen, Everything bad in this world is because of sin. Everything. Wars. Racism. Terror. Disease. Broken homes. Stolen cars. Injustice. Abuse. It's all because of sin. Sin is worse than you and I can ever imagine. And my hope in Leviticus is that God will root into our heart as we study it an understanding of the severity of sin, that we have an unshakable disdain for sin. And so, yes, the punishment is severe because sin is severe. Now, there's good news that one has come and died for sinners and rose again from the dead for sinners. And in him there is forgiveness of sin. More on that later. Okay. So, so uh, hopefully that will kind of help us. Maybe, maybe it doesn't help you. I don't know. It helps me. But the question you may have, well, okay, if that's all true, then why, why not the same punishments today? Well, I would simply say, and again, I could talk to you more afterwards, these laws are given to Israel as a theocratic nation in covenant with God. God is not in covenant with nations anymore. He is in covenant with His church. And the church is not given the role of of this type of justice. That is given to the state or the government, Romans chapter 13. And so the church no longer has, or God's people no longer have that role as they did when God was in covenant with Israel. And so that's considering the punishments on sexual sin. let's consider now the prohibitions on sexual activity found in chapter 18. These are not all the prohibitions from God's word. And for instance, we won't find anything about fornication or pornography, for instance. But there are a number there. Consider, first of all, I think what is seven prohibitions we find from this passage. Number one, God forbids incest. Look at in verse 6. Chapter 18. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. God is saying sexual relationships within a family is forbidden. Of course, our society has somewhat of an aversion to this. However, I, I would suggest to you that its aversion is not as great as you may think. I don't. I, I, I've counseled in, in pastorally many people abused, sexually abused by family members. Um, I'll also tell you that the ancient societies, ancient Near East societies did not have a natural aversion to this we know egyptians brothers and sisters would marry within uh egypt and, and israel of course is living based on clan right the the land is is allotted out to them so your family lives here and your close family lives here and so you're close to these people you're living close to them and so the proximity of living close to family would give opportunities for this kind of sin uh, when god forbids incest i think there's a very practical benefit anyone who's been divorced knows how extremely difficult that is? Well, could you imagine if the person you're divorcing is a very close relative? And now, now, especially for the women, what family do you have to return to when your ex is, is in that family as well? So God is protecting people here. He says you may not approach any one of your close relatives. Then he goes on to define from verses 7 to 17 who qualifies as a close relative. I'm just going to list them out for you. They're mostly from the perspective of a of a man. Though and I think you could reverse it. So a close relative is a father, a mother, a stepmother, a sister, a stepsister, a half sister, a sister in law, a daughter, a stepdaughter, a daughter in law, a granddaughter, a step granddaughter, and an aunt, either by blood or by marriage, are all listed in verses seven through seventeen. Of course, we know when God's people violate this law. We see that in the Bible. You remember Lot and his two daughters giving rise to two nations that were constantly opposed to God's people. We even know in the New Testament this was being practiced in the church at Corinth. There's a an incestual relationship in the church. A man is, is having a relationship with his stepmother and the church says, well, that's okay. And the apostle comes and says, no, it's not okay. You need to discipline them. In other words, it's still a sin in the New Covenant. Second. Prohibition, we see God forbids polygamy. Verse 18, And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is alive. Now some have suggested this is just a prohibition from marrying your sister-in-law. But if you read earlier, he's already prohibited that. He's already forbidden that. right? And so many commentators understand this is a prohibition to polygamy. Now not everyone agree with that. I would say whether this is a prohibition or not, I believe it is. The Bible never encourages polygamy. The Bible never says, okay, to a man, you have a wife, why don't you go take another? It's never said in scripture. And of, of, of all the cases of polygamy in the Bible, every single one, it never works out. There's always discord and disharmony in the house. And it is clearly, according to the book of Genesis, not God's design. What is marriage? Is one man and one woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, is God's design. Number three, God forbids unclean sexual activity. Verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. We have considered in our study of Le- Leviticus the, the, the ritual purity laws. We've seen that the loss of blood makes one richly defiled or richly unclean. And God is saying uh, under this covenant, right, you, you cannot purposely make yourself unclean in this way. And so he forbids this activity. Number four, God forbids adultery. Verse 20, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Now, when he says your neighbor's wife, he's not saying it's okay to have a sexual relation with another married woman as long as she's not your neighbor, okay? right? The, it, typically, you're going to have adultery with someone you know, like a neighbor, right? They didn't go back to the office back then, okay? They lived there together, and so this is why he's identifying a neighbor. Today, by the way, we shrug at adultery. It's just common. We even glorify it. You watch TV. Adultery is always thrilling, right? I don't know what was it. What was the website? Ashley Madison. Remember that the the adultery website and all the lives that were ruined because that was hacked and all the names came out. Many people, famous and prominent, right? Uh, Listen, I've observed people who have recovered from adultery, and let me tell you, it is not thrilling. It ruins lives. It leaves lifelong scars. And so let me just put in your heart right now. If you are flirting with someone that's not your spouse, if you're drawing close to them, if you're giving them your heart in a way that is inappropriate, stop. By the grace of God, stop. It will destroy you and those you love. And it is forbidden by our God. He says in Hebrews 13, let the marriage... Let marriage be held in high honor among you. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God's ways are better than Hollywood's. Number five. God forbids killing children. Verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Moloch was an Ammonite god, which is modern-day Jordan, and Moloch would require child sacrifice. Archaeologists have excavated temples to Moloch, and they have found the uh, bones of children and babies there around those temple sites. From what we understand, they would make an idol out of Moloch, and Moloch's arms would be stretched out. They would build a fire around Moloch and wait till his arms are white, hot, and then they would place their children upon His arms. They would do this in a place called the Valley of the Drum. The priests there would beat the drums so loud that it would drown out the children's screaming. I, I, I give you those details just to be clear. Satan is alive. And he hates us. He's not cool. He's not hip. He's a murderer and he goes... After the most innocent people, the Ammonites did this. And astonishingly, the Israelites did this throughout their history. The prophets are constantly telling them, stop sacrificing your children to Moloch. And we think, how can anybody do this? Why did they do this? You know why? Because Moloch ensured a good harvest for them. Moloch kept their dreams alive. Moloch helped them fulfill their future plans. In other words, I'll tell you, Moloch is alive today. And he lives here in America he goes by a different name, but 60 million babies have been sacrificed to him since 1973 through a process, process we call abortion. Why do we abort our babies? Because we want, we want a good harvest, don't we? We want our dreams. We want things to go well for us. We don't want to interrupt our plans. It's the same reason they did 4,000 years ago. In fact, if you think about this, I want you to understand three truths about this child sacrifice. God hates this. Number one, you read chapter 20 and verses 1 through 5 are all about the punishment upon those who sacrifice their children to Moloch. And God says, not only will I punish you who sacrifice your children to Moloch, but if you know someone who's doing this, I'm going to punish you. And you don't stop it. I'm going to punish you as well, God says. Number two, God gives grace to sinners through Jesus. Number three, children are... A blessing. Children are not to be used to further our dreams and advance our hopes. They are to be warmly received as the gift from God that they are. Number six. God forbids homosexuality. Note verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. I want to this morning spend a little more time here Not because homosexuality is worse than adultery or incest, but because this is the issue of our day. Our issue is not civil rights. Our issue is not slavery. Our issue is not food sacrificed to idols as it seems to be in the first century. Our issue today in 21st century America is sex. That's the issue of our day that the church has to grapple with. And so I want to recognize the time we're in and speak very clearly and I hope graciously about this issue of homosexuality. The Bible actually tells us a great deal about homosexuality. It tells us how to love homosexuals. It tells us how to help people in that temptation. But this verse is not about that. This verse is about the sinfulness of homosexuality. It is called an abomination by God. And I'm preaching Leviticus 18 this morning. And so I want to talk to you about It's sinfulness today. And I think this is important because some of you say, well, I already agree that homosexuality is a sin. But do you know why? Can you articulate it? Can you defend that position when you are uh, pushed on that? Moreover, some of you in this room, and some of you have already had this occur to you, some of you in this room will have a child or a grandchild who will one day come out as a homosexual. And you, will, you love them, of course. And you will be tempted to set aside the biblical conviction in order to fully embrace your child unless this is rooted in your heart. This past year, I've spoken with three different families in which this is occurring. One mother is very tempted in order to embrace her child to set, to set aside the truth of Scripture. It can't be true because I want to love my child. This just happens. This is, in fact, Eugene Peterson, he saw parents dealing with this issue. Rather than teaching the Bible, he said, quote, they finally accepted that this is not a bad thing. This could be a good thing. This can be a flourishing thing, end quote. And so listen, we need to love people, but we need to hold to the truth of God. Okay? And one part of the truth of God is God forgives sinners. More on that later. Okay? We need biblical conviction and clarity. So why is homosexuality forbidden by God? Well, we see here in verse 18, God says it is contrary to his design. Excuse me, not uh, chapter 18 verse 22. You shall not lie with a male see what he says as with a woman. It is an abomination. Right? You don't do with a man if you're a man, you don't do with a man what you're supposed to do with a woman. It's contrary to nature. It's contrary to God's design. God has designed men and women to fit together, right? Romantically, God has designed men and women in order, like God, to be able to create life together. This is God's design. Homosexuality is contrary to, to how God has established it. It's contrary to nature. For the same reason, the next verse is going to forbid uh, bestiality because it's opposed to God's design. It's a rejection of God's plan, and therefore he calls it there in verse 22 an abomination. Now you might think, okay, that's Old Testament bigotry. It's not consistent with the New Testament. And all I would say to you is, okay, then read the New Testament. Close Leviticus and start reading your New Testament because Jesus clearly affirms this. Now, some people say, okay, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, which is kind of true. But Jesus never said anything about a lot of things. He never said anything about incest or bestiality or drug use, right? It was not the debate back then. But what Jesus did say is affirm God's plan and quoting a number of times Genesis 2.24, for this reason, as I've already established, a man, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's what marriage is. One man, one woman in a monogamous lifelong relationship. God made marriage. God says marriage is mine and I don't care what your Supreme Court says. I also want you to note, Paul does directly address this in three passages. Romans chapter 1, Paul lists sins, one of which in verse 26, he says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Paul says this is a rejection of God's design. You see that same argument. They, he says he's they've exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. First Timothy one eight. Paul says now we know that the law is good. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Then he begins to list sin for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to nature. Third, Paul will use third passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He lists these sins and he says, listen, do not be deceived. If you give yourself to these sins, you will not go to heaven. So he's saying, do not be deceived. Now when I say, when he says give yourself, this is not fighting and struggling and praying. Right? Some people lapse into sin and loathe it, it has been said. Other people leap into sin and love it. This is dope. that's the group he's talking to. People who are leaping into these sin and loving it. Right, God says, these people are not mine. And among them are homosexuals, God says. Among others, other sexual immorality. You see that. It's a rebellion against God. It's a declaration to God. I will not have you rule over me. I will not follow you. Now, if you want to explore this more, I would recommend a very small resource to you. It's a book by Sam Alberry. Is God Anti-Gay? Sam is a Christian pastor who struggles with same-sex attraction. And he is seeking to live a life of obedience. He's very helpful because he raises the issue that there's a difference between homosexual desires and homosexual acts. He's been praying his whole life that God would work a, a renewal in his heart. Right? We're, listen, we're all tempted to various sins. You're tempted to sins that I'm not tempted to. I'm tempted to sins that you're not tempted to. By God's grace, we can resist them. Right? God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can endure But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape. I do want to say, uh, before we move on, if there's anyone here who struggles with this issue, if there's same-sex attraction that you fight against, if you're confused, if you've sinned in this area, this is a community of people, one, committed to truth and loving people who struggle and sin. And so we all struggle in sin. And so this is not a burden to carry along. This You will not receive this judgmental disdain in any way. But if you, you come and talk to me or talk to an elder, talk to someone in your community group, and you will receive love and sympathy and support as we try to walk lives together in obedience to our God. Number seven, God forbids bestiality. Verse 23. And you shall not lie with an animal, and so make yourself unclean with it, neither shall you, shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. I don't, I don't even want to talk about this, and you don't want me to talk about it. Um, let me just say that it is not long until we, people, when, until we hear people say, hey, well, Jesus never said anything about romantic love with animals. I think that day is coming. It is right now no longer... A st- I don't, I don't think there's any stigma attached to polygamy anymore. Uh, It's just a matter of years until incestual relationships are embraced as freedom of marriage. Right? As, uh, as a prominent author has said, two women get to, two, two individuals can choose whom they want to marry. So what if you're related? That's coming. Right? As one social commentator said, we have a growing inability to put sexual impulse in our proper place and it will prove to be our undoing. And I think that's the time in which we live in. Now, some of you still object and you say, okay, wait, wait why does it matter? Why, why can't you just accept me how I am? This is how I am. Right? So so what if we're not married? So what if he's married to someone else? So what if we're the same gender? So what if it's a, a close relative? Why can't you... It's just love. doesn't doesn't love trump all. If, that, if that's in your heart, let me... Let me notice I don't want to just simply tell you what is sin. I want to tell you why it's a sin. I want to tell you why we should follow God. And so, consider these last point this morning: these five reasons why we should obey God. I think you'll find that on the back of your notes. God's reasons for the sexual prohibitions. Number one: this is not our home. Look in chapter eighteen, verse one. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So Egypt is where they have come. Canaanite is where they are going. Egypt did these things. Canaan did these things. We see this over and over again. And God says, so what if the Egyptians did it? So what if the Canaanites do it? You belong to Me. This is not your home. So what if the academy teaches it? So what if the media embraces it? So what if your business demands it? So what if your peers or your children practice it? God says, you are aliens... And sojourners, this is not your culture, this is not your home, you are mine. Our culture says have sex with anyone and any amount of people as long as they're consenting. And we as God's people are saying, that's not my culture. That's not my home. And the Hebrews had to live amongst this, and now we have to live amongst this. And, and if we are to follow God, we will need courage. Listen, you will need courage to embrace God's truth here. You will need courage to to not compromise out of fear of being called a bigot. And and young people, I think about my children growing up in this culture, I think of teenagers and college students, you in particular will need courage. in the culture in which you inhabit to defend the belief that sex is God's gift for one man and one woman in a lifetime of a marriage covenant. This is not our home. Number two, God is our authority. Look in verse 4. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. That is not the first time we hear that. You see, um, he said it in verse 2, didn't he? I am the Lord your God. Look in the end of verse 5. I am the Lord. In the end of this chapter, verse 30, the very end, I am the Lord your God. Six times in chapter 18, he says, I, the Lord, am your God. So why obey Him? God says, because I say so. Right? Every parent can relate to that. Can't you, parents? Why obey me? Because I am your authority. God is is in charge. He created the world. He runs the world in a certain way. We are to do what He says. Now you say, I don't like what he says. Okay? That's fine. If I were in charge, I would do it different. You say, "Uh, okay. But you're not in charge. Right? He's in charge. It was J. Vernon McGee that said, this is God's world, and He does things His way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a world. Right? Right? It's His world. And so He gets to do it his way. He gets to determine what's right and what's wrong. And today, what's the authority? It's us. Right? I'm my own authority. I determine what's right and wrong for me. It's my personal preference. I decide what I'm going to do and what I'm going to do. And the Lord says, no, you don't. I made you. I, Christian, He says, I put my son on the cross and he died to redeem you. You belong to me. You do what I say. Period. And and listen, understand, when you don't do what God says, means I'm not going to do that. God says it, I'm not going to do it. That is an impersonal attack upon the God who has redeemed you. It's saying, I don't want to be like you. You're saying, it's my life. I'm not going to live it the way you want. It's my body. I'm going to do what I want with it. And God says, my people do not live like that. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary to the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Number three. Blessings follow obedience. Look at verse 5. You shall therefore keep My statutes and My rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The NASB translates it this way. So you shall keep My statutes and rules by which a man may live if he does them. The New Revised Version says, By obeying, so one shall live. Right? So if you do these rules, and you will live. And he's not saying you earn your salvation. This is not saying, okay, obey me and you'll become your God. He's already their God. They are saved by grace through faith just as you and I are. The law, therefore, is not a moral hurdle that they have to overcome in order to become right with God. Any relationship has standards of expected behavior, right? And and it, we're going to be faithful to one another. And we, we see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. God gives us commands. In the New Testament, and we obey them because we want to be faithful to Him. We want to experience the abundant life and His blessings that follow obedience, right? God blesses obedience. It's a place of joy. I tell my kids all this when they're being disciplined. I tell them almost every time. A blessings follow obedience. Obedience is the place of joy and safety. Disobedience is the place of harm and sadness. And we don't even need to read the Bible to understand this. I mean, just look around Just listen, decade after decade, study after study without fail. And they all agree that the best indicator that a child will have future healthy relationships, personal well-being, and economic success is if they are raised in a home with one mom and one dad. That's just, that's science. You don't even have to appeal to the Bible. It shows us that blessings follow obedience. Now, praise God, there is mercy when we are not raised in that type of environment. And I thank God for that. But the world works in a certain way. There is a moral framework to the world. And the more we live in accordance with God's framework, on a whole, our life will go better. Do them and you will live, God's says. Number four. To the contrary, harm follows disobedience. Look at verse 24 of chapter 18. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these things the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. verse 28 now. Lest the land vomit you out when you when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from, my, from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you. And never make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. God says those people those that inhabited the promised land before Israel were driven out. Not because God says, well, I really like Israel and I don't like these guys, so you guys leave and here comes Israel. No, God cast them out because of their sin. They had defiled the land. Even though the land is personified here, it's almost as if it's sickened by the people's perversion, it's nauseous and it, it vomits out its inhabitants. You see, the land, the promised land was to be like the Garden of Eden. Look over in chapter 20 and verse 20, what is it, verse 24. He says, but I have said to you, you shall inherit the land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? This is a land of, of abundant milk. That's, that's an idea of being the nutrients of the land. It's, it's a land flowing with honey. That's the sweetest food available. It's a land of, of provision and pleasure and it's flowing with these things. Everything that is necessary, everything that is desirable is there. It's like the Garden of Eden. And as Eden vomited out its sinners... So would the promised land. Israel is to obey the Lord. And if they do not, if they commit the abominations of the people before them, note what will happen. Look in verse 22 of chapter 20. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you uh, to live may not vomit you out. Land will vomit them out too. Send them away from the promised land. That it might be relieved from their defilement, and history shows that's exactly what happened. They disobeyed, and the land sent them away. Harm, listen, harm follows disobedience does you disobey god it brings ruin on your life it brings sadness there's joy there initially i understand that but following that is enslavement and sadness and it will take you sin will take you where you do not want to go the enemy's away aware of this that's why he, he he argues that listen joy and 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 thrill and freedom is found in disobedience that's what he says and he hides the hook with that bait he won't tell you that promiscuity leads to disease, and adultery destroys families, and divorce hurts children, and homosexuality will not create life, and incest will prefer, produce deformity, and pornography will enslave. The the media will promote sexual sin, that it only brings pleasure and never pain. And you know what? God then looks like the bad guy, doesn't he? Right? Well, God is just the the joy killer. And that's how God is presented. But I want to tell you this morning as I began, God's law is good. It is for our good. It is for our protection. And if we followed God's law, life would go so much better for us. Take, for instance, Minnie Warburton, who was abused as a child by her father. And as an adult, she confronted him, but he denied it and denied it till his deathbed. One day, Minnie was reading her Bible, and she came to the book of Leviticus. She said, I remember very clearly the moment when the words leaping out at me, incest taboos, one after another. I slammed the book shut. I was shocked. I had no idea that was in the Bible. My father was six years dead. I never knew he was breaking God's law, but there it was, clear as anything. I will never be able to explain what that moment was like, that discovery of Leviticus 18. I wanted to call up everyone I knew and say it was wrong. What he did was wrong. It says right here in the Bible. Therapists had told me. My own instincts had told me. Everything had told me. Yet nothing told me the way Leviticus told me. It was wrong. Truly, truly wrong. And for the first time, she says, I felt utterly and absolutely vindicated. For the first time, I felt clean. For the first time, I felt released. My brothers and sisters in Christ, God's law doesn't restrict. It protects. And if Minnie's father had obeyed his law, she would have protected her too. The law of God is for life. We don't drive on the left hand side of the road for our good. right? Not to rob us of joy, but to give it. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is Pure, the fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. More desired are they than gold, sweeter than honey. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Amen. Number five. We have a mission. Why should we obey God? There's a mission for us to do. Look in chapter 20 and verse 24. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land and I will give it to you to possess land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord, your God, who have separated you from the people i have separated you. Verse 26, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Israel's sexual ethic was to mark them as a distinct people in order to show God's character. He says, I've separated you. From, you're going to be holy. God covenanted with them to bring the knowledge of the character and the saving grace of God to the nations. He set them apart. This now is the church's job. We are surrounded by, by sin. We are surrounded. The world applauds. What God calls an abomination. What God calls deviancy. And God has set us apart to testify to another way. Christian, please understand, you are to be a reflection of the God who saved you. The purpose of your life is not your self-expression. The purpose of your life is not being true to yourself. The purpose of your life is certainly not your sexuality. The purpose of your life is to show the glory of Jesus by what you say and how you live. And I think God is teaching us His glory is at stake in our romantic relationships. That the hallowing of God's name is at stake in His church. He has chose us in Him to be holy and blameless in His sight. And how many, how many churches today in our land are so consumed with, with getting big or being cool or being modern that they just kind of are quiet... About the truth that I believe the world needs to hear. I said, well, it doesn't talk about that. That's too offensive. That's going to rock the boat. That's going to hurt our numbers. Right? And so let's just, let's just have a nice positive, encouraging message. I like positive and I like to encourage you, but sometimes we have to call sin sin because God calls it sin. And I don't care what happens to the numbers. I want to be true to God, don't you? We have to be committed to Him. That is our mission that He has given us. We exist for Him. He does not exist for you. He does not exist to bless your marriage and help you in your college and all the rest. Though He does by His grace, we have been made by Him for Him to live like Him whether the world wants it or not. That's our commitment. That's why He has redeemed you. And Kevin DeYoung... author says, when you give up the fight against pornography, when you give up your lover whom you promised before God to be faithful to all your day, when you brace homosexuality as a God-given identity, when you champion darkness by calling it light, then the God we profess is made to look like all the other gods of the nations. Not like the holy God we know. Once we refuse to be distinct, we've given up our God-given job." It matters. It matters because the Lord is holy. And we are to be like Him. Distinct in our sexuality and distinct in our love. That is, we are to love those who are not like us. You know, chapter 18? Chapter 20? It says, don't be like the world. Right in the middle. What comes in the middle of 18 and 20? We'll get there next week. 19, right? You know what that's about? Love the world. You go love your neighbor, God says, as yourself. One way we show the world what God is like is we love those who reject our God and his ways. And so, Christians, maybe we could do with a, a still be convicted, but maybe a little less anger, a lot more mourning, a little less talk about taking our nation back. A little less kind of warpath mentality and a lot more talk about god's grace to sinners god saves sinners including people who commit sexual sin you know in the church of corinth there were christians who had previously practiced homosexuality before receiving the gospel i mean we we we, we read part of the passage do not be deceived he says Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? Those type of people don't go into the kingdom. But that period, next sentence, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? God saves sinners. So God speaks strongly about sin. I think we have today. But He speaks even more loudly about the forgiveness He offers to sinners. We, we sang, when sin runs deep, His grace runs what? Deeper. His grace is deeper than our sin. And Jesus, through His death, will wash all our sin away. Jesus on the cross, though perfect in obedience... Became unclean, didn't he? As he called, him, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" He is being, if you will, expelled from God. The Lord Himself is being vomited out of the presence of God, so that you and I can be welcomed in. We who have defiled our ourselves in this land by His grace, we who be, should be spewed away from God forever, instead are invited. Are we not? to His side because of the work of Jesus Christ. Sinners are welcome with God because of Jesus. And we will live forever in a land flowing with milk and honey. We will live in the promised land with God for all eternity because of His grace. Let us speak loudly about the grace of God as we even say now, you who are weak and weary from sin, I invite you turn to Jesus. Turn to Him. And you will find a loving Savior who will wash you clean. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful for Your Word and Your law. Will You even now identify, help us see where we break it? That we might, by Your grace might turn from our sin to a Savior who loves to give grace and mercy. Give us wisdom, Father, on how we can stand for truth with conviction and yet graciously love those who disagree with us. Help us to be like Jesus in that. And as we do, help us to be a distinct people. Bless our marriages. Bind us together. Help husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Help husbands to cherish and nourish their wives as they do their own body. Help wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord even now. That we might testify to a holy God who is full of love and faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.